good morning, everyone. My name is Darren Kellott. I'm one of the elders here at Salem. And a special welcome if you're new to Salem, if you're just visiting us this week, we are so glad that you are here. What a joy to be able to share with you this morning what God's been impressing on my heart as we continue on in this series in Mark. Today, we're going to be digging into Mark 8, 27 through 9, 1. So feel free to join me there in your Bible or on your Bible app. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 1011, 1011 in the Pew Bible. You can also follow along and take notes in your companion guide here. It's on page 17. Just make sure your companion guide says part two on the bottom of the cover. Otherwise, you are going to be very, very confused. And I've got great news for you. They're free. So if you need one, raise your hand. The ushers will make sure that you get one of those companion guides. As we prepare to dive into this passage, I have a question for you. What's the biggest risk you have ever taken? And what do I mean by risk? Well, it could be anything that has the potential for loss, injury, or death. Quick sidebar here, as I was preparing these last few weeks, I asked my wife that same question. I said, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken, sweetie? And without too much thought, she looked at me and said, marrying you? I was tempted to ask her, you know, what was your biggest worry there? Was it loss, injury, or death? But I don't think I really want to know. <laughs> and apparently, honesty is one of the cornerstones of our marriage. Being subtle, not quite so much. But in all fairness, that was a really good answer. I mean, maybe that came to your mind when I mentioned risk. Well, not marrying me, but, you know, your own marriage, your relationships, or something like that. As I asked myself the same question, I considered the risks I've taken, especially those that have been life-threatening, and for some reason, several of them that came to mind have been activities I've done with my kids at their request. Now, I try not to, do, to draw too close of a connection between that and the fact that they're beneficiaries on my life insurance, but I'll let you draw your own conclusions here. One such risk that came to me was with my middle daughter, Nicole. When she was a senior in high school, we asked her, what would you like for graduation? And her answer, I want to go skydiving with dad. Yeah, now you understand my, my uh, sentiment about the life insurance, right? I mean, fast forward a few months, August of 2019, I find myself and our family in Wisconsin where Nicole and I are registered to go skydiving. After sitting in an hour of instruction watching videos where every five minutes they're reminding us that skydiving has inherent risks, and the list always ends with death, well, we put on the baggy outfits, we harness up, we follow several other people that are apparently out of their minds as well. And we board what looks like this pretty sketchy airplane. And then off we go. Now, we're not jumping solo, mind you. We're doing what's called a tandem jump. That's where instead of us wearing the parachute, we instead strap a certified instructor who we know nothing about to our backs. And he's got the parachute. And as we're getting closer to jump time, I'm pondering this arrangement a little more. My instructor on my back is wearing the parachute, so if we get separated, he gets the better end of that deal, right? And if the chute doesn't open, he lands on me, he gets the better end of that deal. I'm really starting to wonder about my sanity here. We get to around 10,000 feet, the door opens on the back of the plane, and one by one, folks start jumping out of this perfectly good airplane. It's the weirdest thing. Eventually, Nicole and her instructor get to the door. 
I take one last look at the daughter I love with all of my heart, and she and some guy I know nothing about jump into nothingness. This stage, I'm really wishing I would have tipped him more. <laughs> now it's my turn. I face the door with my new best friend in all the world strapped to my back, and we lean out. The last thing I remember thinking is, whoa, we're high. I can barely see the buildings. I have no idea where that parachute place is that we left. We're gonna end up in some farmer's field with me head down in the corn like a javelin, and I don't even have a helmet. <laughs> and with that, we somersault out of the airplane. Spoiler alert, we plummeted towards the earth somewhere around 120 miles an hour, I'm told. The chute did open. I ended up not needing my helmet after all, and it was a fantastic experience. The truth is, if my daughter asked again, I'd probably be all in in a heartbeat. I know, I know, I need my head examined. But what risk came to you? Maybe it was marriage or relationship, maybe it was skydiving, maybe it was something else. But can you relate to that sense that whatever it was, it wasn't safe? And in fact, it had the potential to go very wrong? But you counted the cost, and despite the potential for loss, injury, or death, you took the plunge. We're entering a section of the story in Mark where the disciples were about to encounter the reality that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is not safe. There's inherent risk, and it could cost them everything, their comforts, their reputation, even their very lives. And the same rings true for us if we choose to follow him. It's a turning point in the book where Jesus' teaching starts to get more challenging. I'd even use the word heavy. So is it worth it? Let's dig in and find out. As we turn to this passage in Mark 8, I'd like to point out that there's a very similar account of this story also in the book of Matthew chapter 16, also in Luke in chapter 9, and pieces of this account show up in John chapter 12. Let's see what's going on here. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Mark sets the stage for this conversation in this very first book with the location, or in this very first verse with the location. The villages around Caesarea Philippi. Your companion guide gives you more background on this area, and page four contains a really helpful map. But in short, this region is north of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spent much of his time. In fact, it's the furthest north that Jesus and his disciples would venture during his ministry. And it was a region known for a very pagan culture. Jesus and the guys are traveling on the road doing life together when Jesus decides to take a pulse on the popular opinions of culture. He asks these guys, say, I'm curious, what are you hearing? Who do people say I am? Verse 28 gives their answer. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. In other words, the disciples are saying, there's all kinds of ideas out there, Jesus. Lots of people saying lots of things. Notice, isn't it interesting that the general perception was that indeed Jesus was someone special, but the crowds hadn't connected the fact that he was the Son of God? I can see Jesus listening. He probably nods. He ponders, and then maybe he stops, looks at the guys, and responds with an absolutely critical question. It comes in verse 29. 
But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. The Greek word, or I'm sorry, let's take a second to jump over to the account in uh, Matthew 16. Um, Matthew 16, verse 16, um, just gives us a little bit more insight into Peter's answer and Jesus' response. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. The Greek word that Peter used in his response is Christos, which means anointed one. In Hebrew, the word is Messiah, literally translates as the one who is anointed. Peter is saying, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one we've been waiting for, the anointed son of God. Peter had observed Jesus closely. He'd walked alongside of him. He'd seen his rhythms. He'd heard his teachings. He watched how Jesus treated people. He'd witnessed his miracles. And after all that, he draws a conclusion. Jesus is not just an ordinary man. He is not just a good teacher. He is not even a great prophet. He's the son of God. Peter's answer is absolutely correct. And Jesus affirms that by telling Peter his insights came from God himself. Let's back up a moment and ask a question. Why did Jesus ask the disciples who they thought he was? Jesus isn't asking for his own knowledge, understanding, or confirmation, nor is he asking as some sort of an ego trip. No, it was for the benefit of the disciples and us, and that benefit is twofold. First, to establish that they had it right. Considering all the misperceptions out there, do they truly understand who Jesus is? Peter got it right. Jesus is the Messiah the Son of God. But second, I'd argue, Jesus also asked that question to allow them to separate themselves from conventional wisdom, to answer for themselves who they understood Jesus to be. He was asking them, is there a difference between what other people say about me and what you think? There's an application to be made here, and it comes in the form of the same question that Jesus asked Peter. Jesus is asking each of us individually who do you say I am? Have you answered that question for yourself yet? As you ponder that, let me warn you though to think on it carefully. It's probably the most important question you're ever going to answer. Now that you've heard about this historical Jesus, read about his teachings, and learned of his life through the scriptures, we need to decide for ourselves who is Jesus. Let me give you a few options. First, do you think he was a lunatic? Was he just a crazy delusional man who wasn't in his right mind? Was he talking gibberish about things that he knew nothing about? If that's your answer, I challenge you to account for what he did. How do you account for the prophecies he's fulfilled? Coincidence? How did he perform the miracles and rise from the dead? Was he simply out of his mind? Or maybe you say, he was a liar. All those things he shared about who God is and how we should live in light of that reality, was he making it all up? Was he just another man misrepresenting the kingdom of God in his divine nature and intentionally leading us astray for his own fame or for some other purpose? If that's your answer, you've got to consider that he ultimately died on a cross. 
I mean, that's a bizarre ending for someone hungry for power. Wouldn't he leverage his control over people to a bigger purpose than just dying? And again, how do we account for the miracles, for his empty tomb? We're talking about historical facts here. But if he wasn't a lunatic and he wasn't a liar, we're left with one, only one other alternative. He must be Lord. The true Son of God who came down to show us who God is, show us how we should live, and provide for us a path to heaven and eternal life. But be careful with that answer. Because if that's truly your conclusion, that indeed he is Lord, then what are you going to do with that? How is that reality going to change your life? How will it be evident in the choices you make, in your priorities, and how you invest your time in your worldview? If he truly is Lord, then listen closely. Because Jesus, the real Jesus, is about to give you some really challenging teaching. Continue to verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Notice the intentionality of Jesus' timing here. Given Peter's answer, now that they know and have at least that understanding of who Jesus is, the Son of God, Jesus now feeds his disciples the next level of information about his purposes here on earth. Maybe they weren't ready before, but they are now. There's one word in this passage that makes all the difference. That word is must. The Greek word here is day, D-E-I, pronounced day. And it means to be necessary. In your Bible, maybe it's translated as necessary or required, or maybe like in mine in the NIV, it's must. In fact, in my NIV translation, they emphasize it by using it twice. He must suffer. He must be killed. Whatever that word is in your Bible, necessary, required, or must, underline it, circle it, highlight it. Why? Because it means there was no other way. Let's step back and review our sin problem for a moment. God is perfect, pure, holy, void of any sin whatsoever. And when we sin, we're eternally separated from our holy God. Our sin is our death. Look at Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what are the consequences of that egregious act? We find out in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. In short, our sin is our guilt and our death sentence. There is nothing we can do to rectify the situation. Let me repeat that. There is nothing we can do to rectify the situation. To redeem ourselves. Remember a couple weeks ago when Seth shared that list of maybe 15 of God's attributes, his traits, his characteristics? Oh man, that was good stuff. January 14th sermon, I dare you to listen to that and not have those resonating in your head for the couple weeks. Amongst them, God is holy, he's right, he's good, he's just. And in fact, he's also infinite, which means he is infinitely good, which means he is infinitely just. And the just consequences for those who sin 
in relation to a holy, sinless God is death. But God is also love and grace, and he's infinitely loving and infinitely gracious, right? So how does he reconcile those two qualities, infinite justice and infinite love? He did it by providing a way to restore us. But since we're flawed, he needed to be the one to redeem us. And he did that by offering his perfect son as the sacrifice in our place to appease and satisfy God's wrath. There's a word for that. It's called propitiation. It means God's righteous anger and just judgment were fully satisfied through the sacrifice of his perfect son. Not just partially satisfied, but fully, completely, to the very last drop. Because of that atoning sacrifice, we are redeemed and restored to God. So that word must in this passage, it gives that sentence in Jesus' purpose a whole new meaning. It means his death at the hands of the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Romans, the Jews, us. It's more than Jesus' ambition. It's more than an objective If mankind is to be redeemed and restored to a holy God, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, must be that sacrifice. He must be the propitiation for us in our sin. And how do the disciples respond to this new information regarding Jesus' purpose? Well, again, Peter takes the lead. He seems to be the spokesman. But unlike his correct answer just a couple verses ago, this time he misses the mark completely. The text we just read says Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Isn't it interesting to consider that Peter's two reactions here in this passage? He acknowledges Jesus as Lord, but then he takes issue with what Jesus is telling him after that. I don't know exactly how Peter's rebuke was worded. Was he telling Jesus that talk of his impending crucifixion was foolish talk? Was he trying to convince Jesus to save himself for the sake of continuing to lead the people? Was he saying there's a better way to rescue the Jews from Roman oppression than dying on a cross? Was he telling Jesus that he, Peter, would never let Jesus be taken? We don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe it had a little flavor of all of that. But in any regard, Jesus puts Peter in his place with a pretty intense rebuke of his own, telling him he's just doing what Satan attempted to do when Satan tempted Jesus and tried to divert him from his purpose and his mission. Jesus tells Peter he's thinking too small. He's thinking of this from a world's perspective, not from an eternal perspective. And it's at this point that Jesus' teaching gets really challenging for the disciples and for us. Look at verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now notice how Jesus directed his comments to the crowd here. This isn't just for his current disciples. This is for anyone who would desire to be a disciple of Jesus. First, his disciple must deny himself. We have to be careful not to misrepresent that word deny in this imperative. Remember Seth's message from a couple weeks ago about legalism? Making sure to avoid the pitfall of building fences around holiness and then using those as measures of our holiness? We could do so easily Here, making a list of the things we need to deny ourselves in order to meet this requirement, right? Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you made New Year's resolutions this year? Anybody? A couple? A few? I was in the camp that did. And one of mine involves my favorite beverage, 
that heavenly nectar known as Mountain Dew. <laughs> oh, my goodness, I love that stuff. I am really hopeful that when we, get, when we get to heaven, we find the streets are gold, but also the fountains are flowing with Mountain Dew. That'd be perfect. But I also know on this side of heaven, my aging body, all that caffeine, sugar, probably isn't the best for me. So in the interest of my health, this year I resolved to deny myself Mountain Dew. My point in that illustration, though, is we could go further. We could deny ourselves just about anything, right? Things or comforts or pleasures or even nourishment or food. But that's not what Jesus said, is it? He didn't say deny yourself something, fill in the blank. No. He said deny yourself. You see the difference? The reason for our denial, it's not self-improvement or for some other benefit. This is a heart issue. It comes down to who's in charge of my life. Is it me or is it someone else? I'm to deny myself in favor of someone else. The Greek word that's used in verse 34 is arponiome. Can you say that with me? Arponiome. Arponiome. And although it means to deny or to renounce, it's more specific than that. It's relationship-based. It means to renounce or intentionally disassociate yourself from someone. It's the same word that shows up later in Mark when Peter denies Jesus three times. He's denying he knows Jesus. He's disassociating himself from Jesus. Jesus tells us the first step toward being his disciple is to deny ourselves, not something, but who we are at our core, in our hearts. We are to deny ourselves and align with Jesus. Then we have Jesus' second step for a disciple of his. Take up your cross. A couple things to point out here. First, remember that Jesus is saying this before he was crucified. After he died on the cross, it became a symbol and represented his suffering and conquering a death. But at this point when he's using the term, it doesn't resonate with that victorious meaning, right? To his listeners, they would associate the cross with the ultimate act of guilt and humility. Someone who's convicted and found guilty would be forced to suffer the ultimate humiliation by being forced to carry the instrument of their death for all to see. I think we've misconstrued the meaning of take up one's cross in our present-day nomenclature. We use it as a term to describe shouldering our burdens or preserving through difficult situations, even sometimes with this air of novelty. We may say, moving to a foreign land with first world luxuries, without first world luxuries, that's the cross I bear. Or maybe we say, living with the stress of leadership is the cross I bear. Or even caring for a loved one is the cross I bear. I'm not belittling any of those stresses or burdens in life. They and others are all very real. But what I am saying is in those sentences, the focus is on me. Woe is me for what I must endure. But in the context of Jesus' teaching here, coming right after deny yourself, the focus seems to be on humbling ourselves. Bearing our cross implies complete surrender, knowing that I have no rights to claim, no other hope, nothing to stand on. It's recognizing my position in complete and utter humility and being accepting of that. And once we realize and accept our position in relation to our God and our sin, Jesus then offers the invitation, follow me. In essence, he says, renounce your claim on your own life, humble yourself, and realign yourself with me. Watch me, 
Listen to me. Learn from me. Do as I do. Follow me. Focus not on building your own kingdom, but join me in building mine. And it means ultimately following Jesus by giving our lives for him. Then we're not only resigned to that, but we're willing to do so. But even there, Jesus grants us greater perspective, a greater context to such a commitment. Look at verses 35 through the end of the chapter. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. That's heavy. That's the real Jesus. He's not calling us to do easy things. He's challenging us to follow him. But not to do so blindly, but because our lives have eternal implications. And those implications are so far greater than the sacrifice. He's helping to put it into perspective. He's reminding us that the most important things in this life are not the things in this life. Let me tell you about some men that understood this. Jim Elliott, Ed McCulley, Roger Udarian, Pete Fleming, and Nate Saint were five men that had a passion to share the gospel with an unreached tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. On January 8th, 1956, they were tragically murdered by the tribe they were trying to befriend and evangelize. In life, they were relatively unknown. Since their deaths, they and their story have been widely proclaimed, the focus of several books and movies. Perhaps the most profound piece of their story, though, is that following their deaths, building on the contact and foundation they laid, this tribe was reached and many accepted the gospel and the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jim Elliott's heart in understanding of Jesus here in Mark 8 was evident in a journal entry he wrote in October of 1948. Almost as if echoing Jesus' remarks and answering critics that may declare him foolish for moving to Ecuador and eventually giving his life for the gospel, Jim wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's a man who got it. They are one group of many throughout history that have answered Jesus' call to give their lives for him. Extreme examples of being martyred for Christ. And it may or may not be what God has for us. But if we believe Jesus is Lord and are his disciples by denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and following him, we should be committed to the point that we're willing to give our lives for him if ever asked to do so. Challenging? Oh yeah. Convicting? Immensely. Extreme? Yes. Risky? Most certainly. But worth it? Absolutely. Do you grasp the implications of the commitment that he is asking for? Do you wrestle with it? I sure do. I confess every day I lose track of eternity. Every day I need to come back in humility to my Savior and God, asking for forgiveness, for grace, and for mercy. But let me ask you something else. If you're committed to following Christ to your death, are you willing to serve him with your life? 
And I think this may be the key indicator of our hearts and our commitment. Jesus hit on that in verse 38. After talking about being willing to give our lives for Christ in the gospel, he goes on to tell us how we should live in alignment with him, associating with him, proclaiming him. In Philippians 1.21, Paul writes, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Is that how you view your life? Do you strive to live and serve Christ, to make him known in all those mission fields where he's placed you, those places where you live, work, study, and play, knowing that someday he'll call you home and you can live with him forever? When I was young, we'd go visit my grandparents on the farm. We'd sleep in one of the bedrooms of this old farmhouse upstairs, and every morning as I came down the wooden steps, I'd read a plaque that Grandma had hung above the door that led into the dining room. And it read, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What a great daily reminder about our temporary condition here on earth in light of our eternal home in heaven. Made quite an impression on me, obviously. I'm challenged by how Jesus calls us to count the cost of serving him, but I also love how he frames it in the light of eternity. Man, I wish we had more time to explore this, but let me simply rephrase eternity using the words from the final verse of our beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. It says, When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. Does Jesus' teaching here in Mark feel heavy? It sure does to me. It weighs on my heart and I wrestle with what it means and how to apply it in my life. But as you feel the burden of following Christ, let me remind you of what else he said. Over in uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice where he says we'll find rest. In him. Take him at his word. Learn from him. Know that he's gentle and humble. He loves us. He has plans to prosper us, not to harm us. Plans for hope in a future. And he's called us to do it alone? Absolutely not. In fact, he's promised to never leave or forsake us. John 15, 4 tells us, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. So what's the application from this morning? Well, it's pretty straightforward, right? And it's summed up best by Jesus himself. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. And how do we live eternally? One day at a time. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which tells us who you are, reminds us of who we are, and invites us to a life filled with you. Thank you for the opportunity this morning to unpack that challenging call from Jesus and put into perspective eternity in our lives here on earth, however long or short that may grant. Help us to hear your individual calls in our lives and to be faithful in responding, living lives on mission with you because we love you and we want others to know that same joy. We thank you, worship you, 
and praise you for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.